Amanda Jette Knox sitting across from me and I'm making sure my levels are good again. And how are your levels? Let's find out. Are we talking biochemical or are we talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What kind of levels are you looking for here? Where are your, where, where are your levels at right now? We should have that conversation in life. Where are your biochemical levels today? How are they today? How are you feeling today? Right, exactly. Oh, I think that's a, that's a really good one. Oh, hello. And how are your levels? Yep. That's nothing I intended to air. As number one best-selling author, Amanda Jesse Knox and I sat down for this very raw conversation you are about to hear. But even if you don't know them, you're about to get to know them on an extremely personal and revealing level that might help you get to know yourself too. This is like an open book about healing from childhood trauma. And Amanda's working through this in front of the world to the point of sharing their story of wanting to take their own life and working through it while also, you know, just being a best-selling author, advocate, and fighter. And their bestseller, Love Lives Here, a story of thriving in a transgender family, is a memoir, but it's more than that. Amanda's life changed when their middle child came out as transgender. Then their spouse came out as trans. You'll hear their stories, inspirational stories of acceptance, what's possible when you lead with love. But what's more in this conversation is the story of healing from childhood trauma from homelessness to international success and starting over and over and over again in front of a worldwide audience in a very public way, just putting everything out there. Depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome, suicidal ideation. But before you meet Amanda, not all stories of healing from trauma are shared in front of the world. So there's an important but unknown one that you need to hear about. So what are we waiting for? Let's just start the music and get to this. Oh, you're new here? Yeah, yeah, of course we have an intro song. Oh, just wait till you find out all of the of courses about being here. Her hair is curly, her teeth are pearly. She's got an edge, but she's still pretty girly. Oh, oh. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Now, that story. So just before we get to that important story of healing, just to show you that not everything has to be oh so public to be such an accomplishment, because I worry that, especially with social media, everyone thinking that an accomplishment isn't an accomplishment unless it's recognized with endless likes, retweets, and shares. But just before that, that makes me think of something. My name Right there, you could see it on this podcast, Dahlia. But there are things that you don't see that play a huge part in this podcast. Like, do you know who my producer is? It's you. Hmm? These topics that we're covering, these guests that we're speaking with, you ask for them, you suggest them. Jeez, it's like you're even my publicist because you share them. So thank you. I'm very grateful for that. And I'm grateful that you take the time when you can be anywhere in the world and you're right here right now listening to this. And by the by, narcissism, 
I hear you on that too. So I have confirmed a leading expert, a world leading expert in narcissism, Dr. Keith Campbell. He is joining on an upcoming episode. Make sure you're following the podcast wherever you listen so you do not miss that conversation. But just before you meet Amanda, that story that you need to know about, there are people who will never be recognized by the world, but you would never recognize the world without them. For me, that person is my mom. Whenever I talk to people about her, I say she'll never be recognized by the world for what she's done, but without the things she's done for me and her selflessness, there's no way I'd recognize the world. My mom was born to Holocaust survivors. To be a child of Holocaust survivors, I don't think you ever get to be a child. She was born in Hitler's hometown, Linz, Austria. By the time she moved to Canada, she didn't speak English. Instead of helping her to learn the language, they held her back a year in school. And then this killed her confidence. My mom speaks perfect English now, no accent. And she went back to school in her 50s, post-secondary high school, yes, to help better the lives of our family. And she even redid some high school to give herself a better chance at bettering the lives of our family. And while I was supposed to be studying for school, she was actually studying for school, hard, and still taking care of the family. My mom is a very talented fine artist, a talent she discovered in her 60s and continues to improve every single day. And she could take any recipe with meat and make it so deliciously vegan that meat eaters wouldn't even know the difference. It's easy to tell the difference though because hers is better. And every time she visits me, she fills my fridge and freezer with her cooking and baking. And because throughout the pandemic, we lived in different cities. And so, of course, we couldn't see each other. I kept her food in my freezer for longer than you should. And it got freezer burn. And I still ate it because I miss her. And it was still very good, except for that slight freezer burn taste. But my mom is the most selfless person that I know. And she has given up more than I could ever give up for anyone. She has literally taken the clothes off her back to keep me warm and dry. I specifically remember her doing this when we were shopping in Minneapolis and we were just going from the store to the car and I was an adult at that point. And my mom is the most graceful dancer. She and my father can clear dance floors with their moves. And she is also the biggest klutz, huge, huge klutz. And every time we go on a trip, she also trips and falls. And now I know why they are called trips. And my mom is also the most innocent little muffin. I'll never forget her cooking in the kitchen while singing the la 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 sweat song by Inner Circle. You know, girl, I'm going to make you sweat. Sweat till you can't sweat no more. And if you cry out, I'm going to push it some more or or. Mm-hmm. She had no clue what she was singing about. Thank goodness. Otherwise, that would not have been so adorable. But you see, you don't have to be a best-selling author or a public figure or do anything that other people know about or praise you for to be a world changer. You can just be the best that you can be. And the difference that you'll make in others' lives is still remarkable. Now, for another remarkable and true story. 
it is time for you to meet Amanda Jette Knox. So sitting across from me right now, I'm looking at you. And just last night, it was like I was reminiscing. I was going through memory lane. And I was looking at some of these videos of you on Instagram. Wow. So you already know that they have to be older videos because you are not somebody who hangs out on Instagram. And I'm looking at these videos and I'm thinking, I don't remember them. That's a different person. And how does the metamorphosis show what's been changing on the inside? Because typically people try to change their outside when they don't know how to fix their inside. But with you, I saw your outside change as you were fixing your inside. That's exactly what happened. Um, it's, it's, it's been a process of figuring out who I am on the inside as I heal from a whole lot of stuff that I didn't know I needed to heal from. And as that has happened, I've become more confident. I've become more authentic. And I think that that just shows. I, I've been taking more uh, risks. I used to care so much what people thought of me. And so I had to, you know, keep my hair a certain way and dress a certain way and act a certain way. And it's like all of that just fell off to the wayside. And now I just get to be myself, which is so liberating. Like I want to take every 20 something and go, you need to do this now. Don't do this when you're in your forties, do it now, do it now and live an amazing life. But I wasn't ready in my 40s or in my 20s. I was not ready in my 20s. Um, I'm really glad to be able to do it in my 40s. Well, let's let's look at this, I guess you could say timeline, because I think this timeline says a lot. You have it even posted to the top of your <laughs> Twitter timeline. Rehab at 14, homelessness at 16, pregnant at 19, high school grad at 38, wrote a bestseller at 43. I will change that to wrote their first bestseller at 43. Came out as non-binary at 44. This entire statement that you put online is packed with childhood trauma and self-worth, two things that have a hard time coexisting. What is their relationship with each other? your childhood trauma and your self-worth and how is that dynamic growing? Oof, that's a really big question. So I did not know that I had an actual trauma disorder until 2020. And before then, I thought I was anxious, just anxious. I didn't realize that there was something beneath the anxiety. But the thing about childhood trauma is it stays with you. It, it's like a foundational thing. So I've always talked about foundations. I talked about that in my first book and I, I use it all the time. We all have a foundation upon which we build the rest of our lives. And in my case, my foundation was really rickety. Unlike a lot of people who go through rough times, like my foundation was, um, it was built on, feeling like I was unlovable, feeling like I would never be enough, feeling like uh, a fraud in my life. And it created a life where I 
sought a lot of validation outside of me. I needed that validation from other people because the well was dry inside. So I, I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I ended up having what I would consider to be a breakdown in 2020, a full mental health crisis. And when that happened, thankfully I got the care that I needed. And in all of that, I was diagnosed with complex trauma stemming from childhood. And that created my anxiety disorder and that created my depressive episodes. And I had to build myself back up from the ground up. And I had to get to the point where I could figure out who I was and learn to love myself and see my own worth. And that is what people see today. They are seeing what I see finally in me. You might not always see all of those things in you too, because you still see through the eyes of a child. I just picked you up from a fancy dancing, way too expensive breakfast at a way too expensive hotel from a business lunch breakfast whatever I'm too enthralled by just this whole situation the flip in your life to actually know the difference between lunch and breakfast apparently and even then you tell me when are they going to figure me out (laughs) (laughs) yeah imposter syndrome is real my friends and a lot of us have it I mean that is that is the truth and it's something that I've always struggled with a little bit less these days, but even, yeah, even today I am out for breakfast at this very nice hotel with somebody from, um, my publishing house. And we are, we are discussing, uh, my upcoming book, which will be out next year. And I just, I had a moment afterwards. I had to go into the bathroom and like, I, I almost started crying and I was like, how is this my life? Like I am still, every time I walk into a place like that, I feel like I'm going to get approached and be told to leave. Like I, I never ever feel like I'm in my element in those spaces. And that is because I used to sleep in stairwells and I used to sleep in shelters and halfway houses. And, you know, I used to, I used to ask people on the street for money. Right. And I, I never had, um, you know, the, opportunity to go into a place like that. And if I did any get anywhere near one, sometimes people would look at me funny, you know, and security would walk up to me and they could see like, like you don't belong here. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, first of all, I think everyone belongs everywhere. So let me just say that right up front. Um, I really, really don't like classism whatsoever. Um, but yeah, it is, it is really the, the juxtaposition between my life when I was younger and my life today are very, very different. And that's the thing about trauma though, that foundation, that core, um, that, that made me who I am also left me with those feelings of not belonging. Right? So whenever I enter a situation that is not familiar to me, or that just seems really, it's something I would never have done when I was younger. I never had the ability to do when I was younger. I always feel like somebody's just going to figure me out They're They're going to figure out that I'm not supposed to be there. Um, it doesn't happen though. I had a very nice breakfast. <laughs> okay. You know, when you talk about that, well, a few things hit me is one, a bathroom cry. Washroom, washrooms are my mental health safe zone. I have used them to dance, not kidding, 
use them to dance to build up the, a bad moment, especially when I used to work in a radio station where they played music in the washrooms all the time. I would use it for a mental health break. People are like, why is Dahlia always peeing? Well, one, <laughs> you see my mug, you see how much water I have in front of me. So that's one reason. But two, it's mental health breaks. Three, crying in, and I don't even know, I'm a I'm a talker, not a numbers person. So if that should have been a number two, I apologize. But I'm a talk show host, not a math show host. <laughs> uh, you know, crying in the washroom, going there to have some time alone, especially when you're processing feelings. It's actually a very healthy space. And so I think at this point, we actually need to rewind because you're talking about your childhood trauma and you're talking about how far you've come. We need to understand where you were before to see to evolve with you and see why you developed these coping mechanisms that were great when you were in that survival mode, when you were going through your trauma, when you were keeping yourself alive, living on the streets, and how those same coping mechanisms right now are the things that can actually hurt you. It's like if you were living in Canada and going through a cold, cold winter and you've got to put on that winter coat and all those warm clothes to survive every single day. And you need to do that. That makes sense to wear clothes that are heavier than you are. But then it comes to summer, you keep wearing those clothes. Well, now we need to talk because you have a problem and your survival mechanisms that kept you alive in the winter are going to really hurt you in the summer. So take us back, because your story, which is what made your book, well, you made it, but what made your book in the first place, Love Lives Here, this story is incredible. But what's incredulous is that you were able to take it and not only flip your life, but flip other people's lives as well with it. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's... <laughs> It's, it's a, I still can't believe I wrote that book, by the way. <laughs> I hold that book in my hands when I'm like signing a copy for somebody or whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, right. I actually wrote that. See, this is, again, we go back to imposter syndrome. Um, so I had a lot of trauma in my childhood. Some of it I talk about, some of it I don't talk about. And, it, and actually at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter as much where the trauma came from as uh, it matters more what it did to me, right? And what it did to me, there was a lot of abandonment. There was a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of aggression. There was a lot of, uh, of violence. Um, and what that left me with was the feeling that I was unlovable. It was the feeling that I, um, that, and, that, and that I needed to try to be somebody else to fit into society because fitting in, I learned meant I was safe. One of the things that I dealt with a lot when I was growing up was bullying and exclusion. And so because I didn't fit in, because I stood out in some way, I was in danger. So my brain taught me that I needed to fit in. So I wasn't in danger and this carried through my life. It didn't matter where I was. So if you had asked me to describe my life to you in very early 2014, I would have said, uh, I am married to a man. I am a woman and we have three boys. 
And I, my life was by design in its own way. I had a little home in the suburbs and a little garden in the front with those like really boring kidney gardens, you know, that everybody makes like that was, I still have that garden by the way, cause I am still very boring. Um, and I just tried my best to fly under the radar and stay safe. And I wanted my children to have this very normal, and I'm using air quotes here, normal life um, where they could just not have to deal with the stuff that I dealt with. And life had other plans, thankfully. And I can say that with 100% truth. Thankfully, life had other plans because that wasn't living. What I was doing was surviving. And what some of my family members were doing was surviving only. So in... 2014 in February, late February of 2014, our middle child came out as trans. And first they came out as a trans girl. So again, this is a child who, when they were born, the doctor looked at them and said, it's a boy. So we thought that we had, a we had an 11 year old son at the time and we were incorrect. Um, so they came out as a trans girl. And then over the last about two, three years, um, said, you know, I feel more non-binary than anything. So that's why I use they, them pronouns now. Um, so, I, uh, this 11 year old comes out as trans. I've got to figure that out. I didn't really know that you could have a trans kid. Not really. So I had to get used to that. And, um, that made us stand out a little bit. And my big fear was that this, this child was going to go through a lot of the same things that I went through when I was a kid. And on top of that, I have to deal with being trans. So the bullying, the exclusion, the violence, um, you know, um, a lot of trans people struggle with finding, you know, um, safe housing, um, finding jobs, being able to stay in school, struggling with their mental health. I mean, addictions, all these things that I dealt with, I thought, oh no, my child is going to have to deal with this. So I learned that at that moment that I had to push past my my, my need to stay safe and protect my child. So what that meant was I had to go to bat for this kid and I had to help push the school boards to do better and had to help push the government to do better and pass trans rights legislation and that sort of thing. So that was all going pretty well. Our kid was pretty happy. Um, I was doing most of the I think advocating and work and my partner was staying kind of far back from that. And I didn't really understand why, but a year and a half later, my, my spouse who I knew as my husband, um, we had been married for 18 years at the time came out to me as a trans woman. And that changed everything again, because it's one thing to have a trans kid and to have one person in the family who is trans. And it is another thing to now at this point be fairly well known as an affirming supportive family of a trans kid. I had a blog and we were doing some media because this was all very new to a lot of people. And we were sort of at the, the beginning of this rise of, you know, um, accepting parents of trans kids, right? It was, there were some that came before us, but we were, we were some of the first more visible ones, but to have two trans people in a family, uh oh, right? What does that look like now? Um, and what does that mean for my marriage? And what does that mean for our family? What does it mean for the kids? Um, and fast forwarding through that, things 
actually went really well. Uh, my wife is amazing. She's an amazing person. Um, and our kids are really happy and life is pretty good. I then, um, came out a couple of years ago, uh, through just self-discovery. Um, I had my breakdown in 2020. I was diagnosed with trauma, with a trauma disorder. And then I started actual trauma therapy. Thank goodness for that. And started really healing from the trauma. And the thing about trauma is that it has layers. So you peel back a layer of protection and suddenly there's more there. And then you peel back another layer and suddenly there's more there. And through peeling back those layers, I realized that while I was going to bat for everybody else in my family, it felt like in all the, the trans community, I was actually also kind of going to bat for myself. I, I realized that I don't identify as a woman. Um, and that I've never, it's always made me very uncomfortable. The label has made me uncomfortable. The association has made me uncomfortable. Um, and that I sort of reside somewhere in between, in between and sort of in that space that, that gender is like this big blob of beautiful and we all sort of have our own place in it. And so for me, I realized that I was non-binary and I am so much happier realizing that and admitting that and owning that and just being really, really happy in it. Every day, honestly, since then has been better than the days before. I'll never forget when I saw Michael Stipe on David Letterman, lead singer R.E.M. And I, I, I don't know how that conversation came into be, and I don't know how I remember this, but I was young when I saw it, and he said, they were talking about sexuality and they were talking about gender and Michael Stipe said labels are for cans <laughs> and that was and right there you know there was a click in the brain but I am sure that right now people are wondering there's a lot to unpack in everything you just said I want you to take us back to that moment when your then husband came to you and said I'm a trans woman because you talk about your identity as you accept yourself, how it grows and it shifts and it's dynamic, probably because you didn't catch up to where you were. So that's why it seems so dynamic. Take us back and tell us what was going through your head when you were thinking that I'm in a relationship with a man who has now come to me and said, after all of these years of marriage, I'm a trans woman. Let's talk about that next. Okay, Amanda Jette Knox, what happened in that mind of yours when you are sitting, standing, tell us the moment. How do you remember this moment when your then husband says to you, I'm a trans woman? So she had always been just kind of really unhappy, right? There was, there was like this cloud sort of over her all the time. I used to call it the Eeyore cloud and she would walk around and like, like Eeyore who has this like rain cloud over his head all the time. That, that was her. And she was feeling pretty low and pretty miserable that night. It was July 2nd, um, 2015. And I said, you know what? Let's go out for dinner. So we went out for dinner. I tried to cheer her up. Didn't really do anything. 
Um, then we went out for coffee and I tried again and didn't do anything. And we're driving home in the car and I was like, okay, I can't just, this has been going on for so long. So I think I need to actually just start asking the hard questions. So, I mean, my first thought was like, we met when we were teenagers, we were really young. And so my first thought was like, Hey, I said like, is it, is it me? Like, is it just that this relationship, you know, it's just, we've been together a long time. We've grown up together. We've changed. And the answer was like, no, 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 it's, it's not you. I love you very much. Okay. All right. So I said, well, is it, is it like the family life, the kids? I know that wasn't necessarily on your radar. And then next thing you know, we're like married and the burbs with children, right? Like that's, it's your whole life. And like, is that, is that what it is? And the answer was like, no, that, that's not it either. I love the kids. Okay. Well, I, I got it. It's gotta be something pretty serious to be this miserable. Right? So I was like, are you gay? And she was like, no, I, no, I, I don't No, I'm absolutely not. That's not what's going on here. I'm like, Okay. So, I mean, I just asked the question because I just wanted to get it out of the way. I didn't think I was going to get the answer that I got. And so I was like, are are you a woman? And the answer was just like nothing. There was no answer. It was just complete silence. We are in the car. It is raining. It is dark. I remember exactly where we were. I remember the smells. I remember the sights because it's one of those like pivotal moments, right? Where everything changed and like the brain just commits it to memory. So I have every, every sense now as I talk about it, it's like a light. Um, and very, very quietly after what felt like forever, um, the answer was, I can't talk about this right now. And I just felt like both of our hearts broke. Like, I swear it just felt like heartbreak in the car. And so I said, you know, so we're driving home and we're like five minutes from home, maybe. And I was like, we can't go home right now. Like we, (laughs) we, we we need, we need to go talk about this. So, um, we pulled into, of course, the place where you talk about all important things, the Walmart parking lot. (laughs) So we're in the Walmart parking lot. And bathrooms are for mental health. Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Big discussions are for Walmart parking lots, apparently. So like we're in the parking lot having this conversation. I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. So I always knew I wasn't heterosexual. So that actually wasn't an issue for me. Um, And in fact, I was never really attracted to men. And Zoe, that's my wife. How did you end up with Zoe? Well, exactly. Zoe, I met at a party. And I had been, I had dated guys. I'd only dated guys actually at the time. Um, I'd had some experiences with girls, but I had only dated guys. And I walked into this party and there's this person who looks like a guy and is sitting at my table. And I sit down, you know, and we start talking and there's this like super strong connection that I had never, ever had with anyone before. And it was incredible. And I remember going home that night thinking like, wow, Finally, there's a guy I'm really into. <laughs> I guess I'm not gay after all. <laughs> it's what I said to myself. Whoops. I think a part of me just always maybe knew without realizing because I've never since had that attraction to a guy. So it's just never been a thing. But Zoe was never a guy right? She was never a guy. She presented as a guy, but she never was one. So in that way, maybe subconsciously, I just kind of knew. 
I have a friend who, and, and this is like a, another one of those things, when you hear people's stories, you understand people so much more. And I think that's why it's so important that you share these stories. And I have a friend who years ago told me that when they were two and finally able to verbalize and string together at least enough words to say this, they were very angry. They walk up to their mother and say, why did you take my penis away from me? Two years old. So you are going through all of these years where, okay, you know, I don't like this, but I'm figuring myself out and I'm figuring myself out. You still figure yourself out more after that entire well, I still say Netflix series scene because this should be a Netflix series. <laughs> Are you in talks for that yet? You just, you just keep, you, you just I'm keep right it. on that. I know you're going to be my publicist someday. <laughs> I swear, you really are. Uh, but you, you keep changing in a world where you've already talked about this. That you know, you look for acceptance from people, and acceptance is a very difficult thing because acceptance comes with conformity and so when the cure for social anxieties is the same thing that creates it it's a, a very difficult place to be when even though you long for acceptance you are still something in you is like but I've got to find me so what was it like going through all of that as a person who never feels accepted I don't know if I ever would have come out of my shell if I hadn't have been forced out of my shell and so in that way it was the greatest gift I mean other people's transitions they're not about me these were about this was about our child this was about my partner this was about them but from my perspective I will say that I had to get mighty comfortable with people not accepting us and therefore not accepting me. Um, I had to get really comfortable with people staring and with people, you know, refusing to talk to us. Uh, with people, literally, I had this one woman in my, at my children's school, anytime that I walked up to a group where she was, she would turn around and walk away. She was so offended by our family. So, I mean, there are things like that that happened and that was really triggering for somebody with complex trauma. I mean, that hit on every little bit of my, my, all of my wounds, it opened them up and I had to push through it because I love my people. And what am I going to do? I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave them just because it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm not going to push them back in the closet, right? Like I'm going to love them through it because that is what I would want somebody to do for me. Love helped you discover your authenticity and live your authenticity. Authenticity is a very difficult thing to find and to live, especially in such a performative world. And we live in a place where we are waiting for others to define us, whether it's by liking us or this or that, or you could walk down the street and your whole life, you know, you think that you look a certain way and you're happy with whatever that 
thing is about you and a stranger can say one comment to you, mention one part of your appearance, for instance, all of a sudden your definition of yourself has changed. You've lived your whole life as yourself, but because we're so open to other people defining us, everything changes. But you stuck to that authenticity, even though it was so uncomfortable, and the love of your family. That makes a big difference. Yeah, I, had, I mean, I really felt like I had no choice there because it was the only, the only right thing to do, and it ended up being like the best thing for me. I get, I mean, even just today, I had someone uh, make a comment about me being fat on the internet. I had somebody call me a narcissist. I've had, um, I'll just, I mean, I've just had like, I mean, I could, I could go on. It doesn't matter because every single day I get dozens at least, um, really negative comments, hate mail, occasionally threats. And so the way that I approach that now is that I have no control over how other people see me. The only thing I have control over is, um, how I react to situations, how I live and how I react to situations. That's it. That's all I have. So I sort of look at it now as that's theirs to own and not mine. So, uh, if you use a restaurant analogy, which I like to use, if I'm sitting at a table and I order a salad and they come and put a steak in front of me. Okay, well, first of all, I love steak, so I might just eat it anyway. <laughs> but let's just say I don't want the steak. That's not what I ordered, right? I'm going to hand it back to the server and say, I'm sorry, but that's not what I ordered, right? That's not mine. So if somebody is going to come and drop something on my lap that is something that is not mine, I'm not going to just take it on. I'm not just going to keep it. I'm going to give it back to them. No, that's that's yours. You can keep that. Because I can be one way, which is the way that I am. And I get people like I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm out of town right now. I'm, I'm, you know, doing meetings and I'm here in Toronto and I am, you know, walking down the street and I had a couple of people stop me yesterday who recognized me and we're just like, Hey, welcome to Toronto. Have you been to this place yet? I know you really love baked goods and this place <laughs> has good coffee. And if you want a wine bar, there's one over here. I'm like, just genuinely just welcoming me to the space and to the city. I have other people who can't stand me, right? But that's the thing. These are all other people's reactions based on their life experience, their perspectives, maybe their own trauma, their own stuff, right? Their opinions. That is theirs. It doesn't belong to me. So I will just keep showing up as myself and I will always listen to constructive criticism because that's really important. That's what helps us grow. But I'm not going to take on other people's judgments. Absolutely not. That is for you. That's not mine. Hurt people hurt people. Correct. Yes, they do. And you have in front of the world, in front of a lot of hurt people, you put yourself out there kind of taking the hit for others so you make it easier for other people to come forward and in front of the world you reveal I had a breakdown in front of the world you heal from your breakdown and then 
we come to 2022 when you've just been out there trying to help hurt people and help yourself grow so you could help others you say this is the first year you're afraid the way you are in 2022 when you think we had come so very far because I see you know having conversations in 2013 and I thought when I first had a talk show and I invite a trans person on my show to talk about that and I'm I'm so excited that we get to share this story because it's before Caitlyn Jenner was in the news and before people were talking about oh this community exists you know to a lot of people that was the first time they either chose to acknowledge it or actually acknowledge this. And I saw how when I first invited people on my show, I saw the hate that I would receive, the hate that people take their time to create, to send to you because they don't like you. Okay, go ahead, put your time into not liking me. But I also saw that get better. I saw that diminish as time went on and I had more trans people join. But then things start to shift. And here you are, such an advocate, such a voice for the trans community, for anybody who is just not part of a mainstream community even. And you're afraid. Can you just start by taking us back to this mental breakdown, (laughs) just so that people can understand the juxtaposition of being at a most fragile point in your life. And then as you're healing and pushing through and getting better, you have all of these people coming after you to the point where you're fearful. The breakdown in 2020 was largely caused by, well, it was caused by my trauma that had been undiagnosed and unaddressed. And the catalyst for it was getting severely attacked online. It started as criticism, which is fine. I expect criticism in my work. That's, that's, that's important. Like I said, but the criticism very quickly turned to personal attacks and character assassination and name calling and threats and all sorts of things that lasted for days and days. And I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I almost took my life. And instead, at the last minute, I still don't know to this day what pushed me to make this decision. Um, I got in the car and I drove to the hospital and I asked them to keep me safe from myself. So that was um, a big day for me. And that started the healing process. So yeah, I I worked really hard and I, I, I do... Um, I am proud of that because I really did throw myself into it. I was like, okay, if you are making this decision to live, then you're going to live now. You are not just going to survive, right? There's a difference between surviving and living or even thriving. I wasn't sure if I would thrive, but I definitely wanted to live and not just, you know, white knuckle my way through life anymore. It took a long time um, to get to a place where I felt strong, and I felt confident and I felt like I could handle life. And just around that time is when we started to see a significant political shift. First in the UK, we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of anti-trans sentiment in the UK happening. And then it moved into the US 
And we are now seeing law upon law, state upon state, creating these anti-trans bills that aim to take away um, supports for trans teens, for trans adults. Um, And we are frankly, and you know, this is not hyperbole at this point because I have run this through uh, several genocide scholars and researchers We are entering a phase in the U.S. at least where this is lining up with a genocide and it is very scary stuff. It is very, very scary. Even just talking about it gets my anxiety up and I don't even live there Um, because that sentiment is now also filtering into Canada. We are getting politicians. We are getting um, leaders who are speaking up and using this as part of their platforms. So we have to really be careful here. So a few months ago, Uh, In May, I was walking down the street and somebody pulled up in a car beside me and threw a bottle at my head and called me an effing freak and sped off. I was in my neighborhood. My neighborhood has always felt safe to me. My neighborhood has always felt good. My wife and I walk around, we hold hands and people are really nice to us. And, you know, we still live with the same families down the road from us. Everybody knows us. They have seen us through our transitions. They, most of them know what I do for a living. Everybody is kind. And then that happened and that shook me. And then even more recently, um, neighbors, their children who are out trick-or-treating received anti-LGBT pamphlets from a house that was giving them out with candy. So these kids were going home with homophobic and transphobic propaganda. It is, and that's currently being investigated, um, but it is heartbreaking that we have gotten here. And yet in some ways not surprising because this is a pendulum effect. We see a lot of progress and then people get upset with that progress, scared, scared of that progress, and then they try and force it back. I don't think it's going to last, but right now these are dark times and I am actually afraid. I have had enough threats uh, in this year alone that whenever I do an event, I need to have security now. I have to have security. I, I have extra precautions when I get out of the car, even in a parking lot. I mean, it is, these are different times and these are scary times for a lot of us. I, I'm envisioning you arriving at an event, needing security with your family. I know your family, Grandpa Jackson. Don't tell me how the 16 year old is now six foot two. I don't want to hear that again. I can't (laughs) handle it. But this is just a family. And I want to talk about this security issue I want to talk about this fear that you have I also want to just go back for a moment to the hospital when you took yourself there because you said I don't know like I don't know what what some you know somehow I'm just glad that I took myself to the hospital and I think that from talking with Dr. Gabor Mate that obviously gives me a pseudo degree in (laughs) trauma and psychology by association of course (laughs) And by using, you know, my research from the Dahlia National Institute of Dahlia Research, (laughs) I would just like to make an observation. I was talking to Gabor and I said, you know, when people are at a place, when they have no hope, they don't know what to do anymore. They are absolutely done. They can't even afford help. What should they do? And he gives 
a lot of great suggestions. And that is in a podcast, a couple of podcasts ago. It's up online video. So I highly recommend that anybody goes and listens to Gabor's advice there. But then I say to him, but what happens if the person says, yeah, that's not going to work for me. None of that will work for me. And he says, well, then I'd ask you, who's saying that? What part of you is saying that you are still seeing the world through that scared child who was living in trauma? And so the fact that that day when you were contemplating taking your own life, you still made the decision to go to the hospital that was a part of you that was growing and healing the new part, the adult part that was overriding what that child was saying. You were able to find that whether or not you consciously did it. You found that point. Are you proud of yourself? No. How proud of yourself are you for that? Oh, wow. Now we're in a life coaching session. <laughs> uh, you could lie down. There's a sofa right there. Perfect. Perfect. Um, I, I, am, I am proud of myself, yeah, for the work that I have done to climb out of what felt like an impossible place. I often say to people, I am an actual life coach, by the way. <laughs> um, I, 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 I often say to people, I say to clients and, and I, and I, I say to people online because I like to give a lot of encouragement online to people who might be struggling. And I will say the internet's non-binary mom. That's right. That's right. I am everybody's internet's non internet non-binary mom. Um, and, and, and I take that seriously because people are struggling and sometimes they're going to see your tweet or your Instagram post or whatever it might be at just the right time. And you have no idea how many people have told me I was in a really bad place and I saw something that you wrote and it helped me. Right. And so like that's, and that's, you know, that's why I do it. But I say to people all the time, what would you say to your best friend in this moment? And so that's what I do now. I'm really big on self-care. So when I'm having a really tough time and maybe I'm beating myself up about it or whatever, um, that is the old me. And I'll take a step back and go, no, 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 no. What would you do if this was somebody you love because you love yourself? Remember? So how would you, you know, like Dahlia, what would I do if you were having a bad day? How would I treat you? How would I take care of you? What advice would I give you? How would I show up for you? That is how I'm going to show up for myself now. And I think that little sliver of that that I had before is what got me to the hospital. It was really close. It was so close that I don't even like to think about it still, but it was so, so close. And it was a, a, just by a hair, I went into that car instead of going to do what I had planned to do. And I'm really glad I did, obviously. I'm sure my family is really glad that I did. Um, but now I use that all the time that like, how do you show up for yourself like you would show up for somebody else? So yeah, I think that makes it a little easier sometimes. Every single person that I've had a conversation with who has tried to take their life, even Kevin Hines, he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and he hoped to take his own life. Some sort of <laughs> miracle kept him alive. And now he goes on to save all of these lives today. And he said to me that... He is so glad 
that it didn't happen, that he stayed alive. And every single person who has attempted to take their life has said to me that they're so glad that it didn't work. And they just needed one little intervention, whether it was from a stranger who said, how are you? Or, you know, whatever it was, whatever rock that stopped Kevin from dying off the Golden Gate Bridge with that jump, they needed that little intervention. And you were your intervention. I was my own intervention. I should actually say my my children were also a bit of an intervention because I started walking towards the car and I had to go down the hallway to the front door. And then I stopped because there was the kitchen. And I started to think about ways that, you know, things I could do to end my life that involved things in the kitchen. And I just was about to turn into the kitchen and two of my kids were in there. And they, they just, they just put some music on and they were laughing and it was, it was a Saturday morning. They were making brunch. Um, and they, and they were like, good morning, mom. And they were so happy. And that was part of it too, where I was just like, what are you doing? You need to get in the car right now. So I got in the car and I, I, and I went, but so I think it was like, whatever you want to call it divine intervention, the universe, or just pure coincidence, I felt like I first started by making myself walk in that direction. And then it was ensured that I would not do anything else but get in that car. And I am extremely glad because my life has been pretty incredible since then. And then as you're healing since then, you take yourself onto social media to share this story and, you know, to be clear, there's a lot of people who follow your every word, especially people who dislike you, <laughs> because what better thing to do in your life? Of course. Than, than... Why, why not hate follow? I mean, really, you know, you could have hobbies or you could follow me on Twitter. I mean, I, whatever you want to do. I, I, I just, I'll, I'll never begin to understand this. <laughs> so you're, you're in this, this toilet uh, of social media and... This is at a vulnerable time in your life and you're putting yourself out there. And then people will say to you, okay, well, if, it, if this is tough for you, get off, get off social media. One, that's kind of like, you know when people say, oh, she was raped? Well, what was she wearing? She was, she was asking for it. it it's, so if somebody is murdered, it's because what they were wearing. It, it's not you who causes the, the crime, the violence, the fault in the other person. Hurt people, hurt people. And so you stay on social media and you continue to share your story, revealing all of these things about yourself at a vulnerable, fragile time. And you have all of these people who, one, are probably being helped by it, and you'll never know all of the people whom you helped. And then there are other people who come with the victim blaming, the victim attacking, and they just come at you, but you stay. You stay there while you're healing. Let's talk about that next. So in learning about yourself, in your healing process, what have you learned about other people? 
other people carry their own pain. That's really what it comes down to, right? So when somebody is being malicious with me, that I, I could get angry. Uh, normally, I actually just feel pity at this point, if I feel anything at all, because I remember being really judgmental. And usually when I was really judgmental, it's because I didn't want to look at myself. And it was so much easier to attack somebody else. So much easier to point the finger in another direction than do the hard work on you. So I don't take it personally. I really don't. It goes right back to the, I didn't order this. Please take it back with you. I will continue to show up as myself on social media because that is what I do. I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> I think maybe a, a kinder word would be tenacious, but I, I am I am a pretty stubborn person. I I sort of have planted my feet firmly in the ground and I just say, this is what I'm bringing. This is the work that I do. I feel that this work is important. I feel that this message is important. It's not for everyone. And if you don't like me and you don't like the message, that's fine. You don't even have to tell me about it. If you want to tell me about it, that's up to you too. But I don't, I don't, I don't owe anyone a conversation about it. I don't owe anyone an explanation of why I show up every day. I just do because that is what's right for me and everyone should do what's right for them. It's developed a whole new part of you for one. It's developed the mom joke part of you. (laughs) I've seen these. It went from you do you. I'm not reading your hate. I'm not taking the time to go through the handwritten or typed out letters that you somehow sent to me and you took all of your time in the world to tell me how much you want to spend your time on me because you don't like me to... Now you're making mom jokes. I know you are working on a second book. Is there a third of mom jokes? <laughs> yeah, I, I decided to do the your mom jokes uh, a little while ago because I just got bored one day and I was like, what? What if I, I was getting this onslaught of transphobia in my feed, just like a whole bunch of it. I was like, what would I do? What what would happen if I just made your mom jokes back at some of these? If I could just find an opening for them, right? Um, Like, you know, like something like, you know, like who even asked for your opinion? And I would reply with like, well, your mom loves my opinion. You should ask her about it sometime, right? She loves loves when we're lying in bed together and I tell her what I think. You know, (laughs) I just just started doing something just for fun. I want to know what your kids think of the mom jokes. (laughs) They love them. They think they're really funny, actually. They, uh, yeah, your kids. So Jackson, Jackson uh, was part of my super kids panel on my show still when he was grandpa Jackson, 12 years old. And I remember one day someone came at me on social media and, it, you know, it, it's whatever you just you just let these things go. It is what it is. And sometimes sometimes you got to got to give a good mom joke back. But he was the first person to just come out and protect me. And then after Jackson did all of these other people, which kind of also gets a bit scary because you don't want people then bullying up on somebody else and you're afraid, you know, where are the lines drawn these days? And it's very quick to be a us against them thing. But the, the cute side, the funny side, the sweet side of it is you see how fiercely protective 
your kids are and how they will not stand by and to have you out there leading the way and showing them how you live your life I mean the same way you were affected by your childhood trauma because of how you were raised they are affected through their childhood their adolescence by how you're raising them so to look at the effect and the influence that you have on them the the only thing i ever wanted to do with my kids was build them up um, a nice strong foundation so that they could go on about their lives with confidence and um, you know, with resilience, those are really important things. And with kindness, please have some kindness. Um, empathy is really important. So, you know, I, I worked really hard on myself throughout the years, even though I didn't know I had trauma, but I worked really hard on myself because I really wanted my kids to have that kind of foundation. And what I, what I do online you know, what they see me do, not just online, but like in my job and the fact that my job is really hard right now. I mean, it's harder than it's ever been in some ways, right? Um, the visibility is hard. The, the threats I get are hard. I mean, all of that is, you know, and the bullying I get online is hard. You know, what, what I want to show them though, is that you can still stand up for what you believe in, right? And you don't, you don't, I, I just, I want them to be able to see, I, I want them to remember something from me. And that is that I got pushed around a lot when I was a kid. I got pushed around a lot when I was younger. I don't get pushed around anymore. I do not get pushed around anymore. You will not bully me anymore. It's not effective. So whether I ignore it or whether I make a good your mom joke or whatever else I might do, I will not take it lying down anymore. And that's what I want my kids to see. I want them to see strength. As you said that, you were sitting up straighter and straighter and you were getting it. Well, you're, you're, I told you right from the start, the metamorphosis, you know, the metamorphosis that you created from the inside out, which is a, a very cool way to change. I don't know how I would classify this. I don't think this is a question, but yeah, let's call this a few more questions, even though I said I don't think this is a question and then I put the word few in front of it. I read this tweet from you, I think it was. I'm on a train. This is when you were coming here. So this is yesterday. It was like two days ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm on a train. I have no one beside me. So I was able to steal the window seat. The scenery is beautiful. I'm sitting with my gratitude and my anxiety, with my ruminations and my hopes. Uh, and I have a bag of homemade cookies for breakfast, which I'm now stuck on that part instead of why I'm holding my four fingers in the air for you to see right now. <laughs> Because now I'm just wondering what those cookies were like. But four fingers in the air for the gratitude, the anxiety, the ruminations, your hopes. Tell us about the gratitude. What was the anxiety? What are the ruminations? What are the hopes? Easy questions. Yeah, e easy questions. <laughs> I recently went through a pretty traumatic experience um, that I'm not, not going to get into because it's a whole novel in itself. But it sort of precipitated me coming to Toronto for a few days. So I, you know, have some meetings today and I booked them all into one day. Two days on either side of that are just for me. They are my days to 
be with myself for the most part. I'm seeing people here and there, but really this is, this is Amanda time. This is healing time. My wife was like, yes, you go and you do that. And I love you. And I'm so happy for you. You go do that. She's been so amazing. Um, I have accepted that I am all of those things. I am anxiety and, you know, I have anxiety, but I am, you know, I am an anxious person. That is for sure. My, my, my trauma brain has made it so that I will always be a little more anxious no matter what I do. Um, but I'm also really hopeful. I'm very hopeful and I do ruminate. I'm inside my head too much, but I'm also, oh, wait, what was the other thing I wrote? What was it? You have, you were sitting with gratitude. Oh, gratitude. You were sitting with anxiety. Yes. Ruminations. Hopes. Gratitude is huge for me. Gratitude is, I, I wake up every day and I try to find things I'm grateful for. I start my day that way and I end my day that way. And it sounds really hokey. It sounds like very like 1990s self-help, but there is a lot of data that shows how much being grateful for the things around you helps put you in a better headspace. So I, I, one of the things that I did before coming to Toronto about two or three weeks ago, I took the week off. I went out into nature and I mean really into nature every day for a week. Um, I went into places where there was no cell phone service and no people. And I was like, will I get eaten by a bear? I don't know. But until I be able to breathe without a cell phone in my hands. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what that did is it, it stripped me of all labels and expectations. When you are just by yourself in nature, it's incredibly healing. And part of what's healing, there's, there's of course, there's the, there's the mindfulness aspect of just being somewhere and appreciating it and taking that time and having no cell phone service certainly helps with that because I'm not Instagramming it, right? I am living it right then. The other thing is that I could just be Amanda. I wasn't Amanda the mom, Amanda the partner, Amanda the author, Amanda the speaker, Amanda on social media. I wasn't, I wasn't Amanda the human rights activist. I wasn't anybody but just me at the core. There was no one around that I had to answer to, no one around I had to prove myself to, no one around with any expectations of me whatsoever. So I could just be. And that was the most incredible experience in terms of growth. And now I try to go out in nature at least a couple of times a week, maybe not that far, but definitely away from people and to just be alone. And I've gotten more comfortable with being alone. And somebody with trauma, I never liked to be alone because then my anxiety would start to spike. I think we saw a lot of that too in, you know, during the early waves of the pandemic where we were all in lockdown and people had to be alone or had to be with just maybe one or two people. And, and that spiked a lot of people's anxiety. I understand why I'm trying to get more comfortable with that because it get I get to know me, I get to feel better with me and then I'm, I'm better to everyone else around me. So we're looking at all of those parts of you and you brought up something that was really interesting when you said that, you know, you just got to be. And all of these things over all of these years, you know, when you do the hard work and, and you work on yourself and you try to figure these things out, and it makes a very big difference in your life because when you're not really you, it's exhausting. And all of these years, all of these things that I've done that I was so proud of being so resilient, 
putting on a show even though you're not in a good place you put on a show and I just don't necessarily mean when you're performing for your career as you know my career has been in the public eye but I just mean like being able to feel your feelings and you know going through stuff and you're labeled as a survivor you're labeled as this you're labeled as that and right from the start you know Michael Stipe when I told you how I heard him say labels are for cans I don't want to be a survivor. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be that. I just want to be. And you said right there that you just got to be. So when you just be, who is this person that you have now finally recognized as, oh, this is the person who can just wake up in the morning, get out of bed and be worthy be worthy of everything. Oh, you, the way you close your eyes there. Okay, I'm just talk. I'm not going to say anymore. Who is it? <laughs> that person is uh, more introspective, I think. I think I used to talk a lot more to fill the space of silence because silence made me uncomfortable. It doesn't anymore. So now I'm much, I think, calmer. I take a lot more time where I'm not looking at a screen. I take a lot more time to just... Look outside, like Zoe and I watch the sunrise almost every morning now with coffee. Um, it's something that I started to do, and she loved the idea so much that now she joins me. So that's pretty cool. You're waking up really early. The really, sun comes out <laughs> really early, really early. A little, a little less early in in you know in the colder months. But yeah, um, I I just it'd be hard to actually describe exactly who I am. Just that I know who I am. Just too. To the core now, I feel like I really have a good idea of who Amanda is and what Amanda is all about. And that is just the coolest thing because for a long time, all I did, like you were saying, is just put on a show. What do I need to be so I won't get hurt? Well, here's the thing. I'm going to get hurt sometimes. I'm going to get my heart broken sometimes. Sometimes people are going to, you know just break my trust or wound me in some way. That is a reality, but I'm not going to let that stop me from being who I am and being happy most of the time. Because one of the really nice things about having gone through a lot of things in my life, a lot of challenges in my life is no matter how bad things get now, I always know I'm going to be okay. And when people ask me like they did recently when I was going through a rough time, how are you? I would honestly answer, I'm not okay, but I will be. Well, when you were saying all of those things and lighting up as you were, and you said, I, I can't describe who I am, but I just know who I am. Isn't that what people who are in love say? I can't describe it, but I know I'm in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Like I, because I love myself now, and I get accused all the time. People are like, "You're such a narcissist. You take selfies and you talk about yourself, and you spend time taking yourself out to do things." And I'm like, "Yeah, damn right I do. Absolutely I do. You know why? Because my most important relationship is me. It's not. It's not my marriage. It's not my children. It's not the relationship I have with my children. Neither of those things can be healthy." 
if my relationship with myself isn't healthy first. So yeah, I do love myself and I'm unapologetic about it. I'm not full of myself. I don't think I'm better than anyone else, but I do love myself and I show up for myself and I care for myself and I celebrate myself. And that allows me to do everything else so much better. That is nothing to be ashamed of. And we have been lied to, especially people who are women or who were raised as women, as in my case, you know, as, as, as a young girl or a woman, you are taught that you are not enough. And that's why you need this. And that's why you need that. And that's why you need this weight loss program. And that's why you need this makeup product. And that's why you need to dress like this. And, you know, we are taught that we are not enough. So whenever people see that somebody feels like they are enough, that makes them uncomfortable if they don't feel that they're enough. Uh, we're taught we're not enough and it's extremely profitable too because first your self-esteem and self-worth are stripped of you and then they're sold back to you. <laughs> exactly. It is the perfect industry that way, right? I mean, they don't want us to have self-esteem. They don't really want us to have confidence. They don't, right? And 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 it is, it is a, a glorious act of defiance when you step out of that role and you go, nope, actually, I'm going to love myself. Which is why I still say Netflix series. I mean, look how well The Handmaid's Tale has done. All right. So <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to skip over this, but I also, you, you mentioned hopes. What are your hopes? I deeply hope and believe that things are going to get better. Right now, things feel pretty dark for a lot of people. There's a lot of fear out there. I really believe that we're going to pull through. I believe in humanity. I think we're going to hit some rough spots. I really do. But I believe that there are enough of us out there that want things to get better, that we're going to make it through things. So that is a big one. Um, I, I believe in love. I have hope for love. Love is a beautiful thing. Love love is dynamic and it grows and it shifts. And I love like even my relationship over the last, we've been together for 29 years, 29 years. Wow. Congratulations. Right? Thank you. Yeah. We celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary this year and our love today looks so different than it did 25 years ago or even five years ago or even five months ago. It looks completely different. So I really have hope that if we lead with love, which is literally written on my arm, it says lead with love on my forearm. It's the, it's my right hand. It's the one I shake everyone's hand with, right? It's that's, that's why I have it there. And I really believe that if we lead with love, my hope is we're going to make it through. So that, that is my hope really. I have a lot of hope for humanity. So then to conclude things, you have all of this hope for humanity. Humanity is in its loneliest time, its most anxious time, its most depressed time. And this is not from the Dahlia National Research Institute of Dahlia Research. This is science. You must receive endless messages from people with reveals. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. Please help me. What's the most common message, message type you receive? And what would you say to that, considering that's the most common message question, uh, call for help that you receive? The most common message I receive is probably somebody who is in their really dark place and they don't know if they can keep going 
and what I want to tell them when they reach out and they write to me like that. And what I often do tell them is I say, number one, you still have strength in you because if you didn't, you wouldn't be reaching out to me right now. So that really shows there is something still inside of you that wants to make it through because you took that energy and I know your energy is limited right now because I remember what that feels like. And number two, you know, there is scientific proof that you have made it through every single bad day so far in your life because here you are, you're still here, right? So I guess the last thing that I like to remind people of, and I try to do this actually before bed, almost, almost every night I send out a message on Twitter because Twitter is like the most vile place. And it's a place where people, the Twitter toilet. Yeah. The Twitter toilet. They, they go there, they get, you know, even more depressed and, you know, I mean, I get it. I, you know, it, it has its uses, but it's also, it can be a really terrible place. And it's part of the reason why I spend so much time there is because I try to make it a better place in the, it, it's just, again, it's my stubbornness, but I like to remind people that they're not alone. Like even when you feel so alone and I've been there, I've been there. I felt very, very alone. You're not alone. There are people who care about you and you're worth caring for. You're worth other people caring about you and you're worth caring about yourself. So that is what I try to tell people. And that is what I really want people to know. Just please hang on. Every time somebody has hung on, they've always told me that it got better. It might take a little while, but it, it gets better for them. So it's the same kind of thing, right? We are all, all of us survivors. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are like, yeah, I'm really glad that I hung in there, right? Things have gotten a lot better. Things do get a lot better and you are not alone. When you were in those toughest points, I don't think that you would have imagined that at 43, you'd have your first bestseller because you're gonna have another one and that all of these things would have happened and right now somebody's probably sitting there thinking none of these things will happen and those were the exact same thoughts that you would have had back then yeah I I so my book had come out at that point but um since I have come back from the brink as I call it uh I have received four or five awards for my work. I am, I just finished writing my second book, which is all about this. Actually, it'll be called, it's, it's called one sunny afternoon. It'll be out in, uh, fall 2023, I believe is when it's slated to come out. And it is all about how I came back from childhood trauma and how, you know, I'm still imperfect and I'm still healing, but look at how far I've come and look at how far we can come. As you were saying all that, if you heard any pitter patter, that was my dog Fozzie Bear who's been sitting on the sofa watching Amanda this whole time as we sit at this kitchen island doing this podcast because you're welcome into my home anytime. And when they say all that, Fozzie Bear goes right up to them and it's like, Oh, congratulations. It was so sweet. He like literally came over just to say like, hey, good job. Good job, buddy. Good job. To go out with, you you talk about all these incredible accomplishments now, uh, all of these fancy, dancy things that happened to you. What is the fanciest, danciest moment 
in your mind that sticks out to you right now that you were in you're like I can't believe this is happening to me well I think the biggest moment was probably being on stage in front of 18,000 people back when we day was a thing and uh and and my non-binary kid and I went to Vancouver and spoke at we day so that was I mean that was huge however I think the fanciest thing I've ever done is probably the Order of Ottawa, where they let us into chambers with like bagpipes and flags. It was like really, it was real. I felt so out of my element. I actually say like on my bio on Twitter, I say pretend fancy person, because again, I will always be that kid who was like in the shelters. I'll always be that person, you know, who, who was, who was, um, you know, who never felt like they could fit in in any space like that. So, so anytime I'm like, I'm, I'm in an air, you know, I, I remember like walking into the room and there were all these other recipients who were getting it this year. I think there were 15 of us. And I was like, why am I here? Like, look, look at these people. They're so distinguished. Right. I still feel that way, but yeah, it was really cool. And I have a medal and I learned that there are like different sizes of metal for different times of the day and depending on how you're dressing. And I was like, I get, I was given the whole like spiel of when I could wear them and when I can't. And I mean, it's, it's wild to me that this is now a thing that is sitting in my office. Right. So yeah, I think that's probably the fanciest thing that I've done for sure. And I bet that there are other fancy things to come. I hope not too fancy. (laughs) I don't know. Bagpipes was kind of a big deal. We'll see what happens next. You will always find a way to fancy it down or to talk it down, no matter how fancy it is. So it doesn't matter. I'm confident that you'll be able to minimize your accomplishments. (laughs) I do that very well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I am proud of that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I cannot wait until the book is out. And I'm pretty sure you'll probably be back before then. And we have to do something on video too. That's a plan. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Amanda Jete Knox, not to be confused with Amanda Knox online. We get each other's hate mail. (laughs) That's perfect. You get to split up the hate. All the people who take their time to hate, I don't get it. Thank you so much. Fozzie Bear. Come, come. You can come back to Amanda. They're okay to cuddle with you now. (laughs) Good boy. And there you have it. Episode 23 in the books. I don't know what books, but that's the expression. So we'll go with it. If you want to make it more literal, go ahead and write a book about it. And hey, before you head on out, thank you for dropping by the Neighboralia and for your kind messages, your comments, sharing these episodes and giving me your feedback, being my producer, telling me whom you want to hear on the podcast, what you want to hear about. I always want to know. So let me know. And please let a friend know. Someone who needs to know that healing is always possible, go ahead and share this episode. And as your friend, may I ask you to follow this podcast as I almost went into a British accent, but stopped myself. And if you don't want to miss the world's leading expert on narcissism, Dr. Keith Campbell, you will want to make sure you follow this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen. It just helps people find us more easily. And I just want to help people live and help live. And you're here. So that means I'm pretty sure that you'd like to do that too. Now, enough of me. 
go on with you. Go quietly change the world for someone or do it out loud. And you know what? You don't even have to change the world for anyone. Change your world. Do it for yourself, my little blueberry muffin. Now go, live, and help live. Oh, oh, nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes without ya. Nibiralia. <laughs>